Well, if you would, grab your Bibles this morning. We were going to be in Genesis chapter 13 and 14. If you're using one of the Bibles in the pews, that will be on page 9, on page 9 of the pew Bibles. If you've been following along with the sermon bookmark, <clears throat> we, I made some adjustments, so we're a little off. Uh, next week, we'll begin chapters 15 through 17, and you can follow the bookmark for the next number of weeks. Lord willing, we'll be able to track through that. There's some of those at the, at the Connection Center if you want a copy of that. I encourage you to read the passage throughout the week leading up to the sermon, to wrestle with it. What is this text saying? Uh, what would God speak to you? And then as we gather, we get to wrestle through this text together. So this morning, though, we'll be looking at chapters 13 and 14. I'm going to read chapter 13, uh, and then we will begin. Genesis chapter 13. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier, and where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who was moving with, or about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herders and Lot's. The Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abram said to Lot, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me, or between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole of the land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan toward Zoar was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted from him, look around from where you are, from the north and south to the east and west, to all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted." Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So Abram went to live near the green trees of, of the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he pitched his tents, where he built, there he built the altar to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> In Neil Postman's essential book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, he explains how our lives are built on amusement. And in his context, he was particularly speaking about television. Uh, he, he goes on to do a study of how first radio and then later television caused modern societies to be a society of amusement. Now, the scary thing about his book, and it is an essential read, is that he wrote this long before internet and computers and iPhones and Androids and Twitters and all the rest of it. Uh, in particular, what he was seeking to show is that this culture of amusement was putting a great hindrance on our ability for public discourse, uh, to have real careful conversations. We had been rewired by the amusement of TV, which was designed to hold your attention for smaller and smaller clips so that you constantly have to refocus. 
By the way, that's the history of the word amusement, which he goes on to show. Uh, the etymology or origin of the word is to amuse. Muse is to think. Ah is the alpha privative or the denier. We say atypical when something's not typical. So amuse is to not think. Perhaps that will make you think differently about your amusement. Well, one of Postman's great concerns, in particular in this book, uh, about TV was when TV had the pretense of significance, but it was really just amusement. He said if he's going to watch TV, he'd much rather watch the Three Stooges than the McNeil-Lehrer Report, which one uh, wag has said is the Two Stooges, perhaps. Uh, Here is his point, is that McNeil and Lehrer were far more dangerous because they were pretending They were acting as though they were substantive, careful, thoughtful analysis of the world of the day. Uh, The same thing has continued in our day. On the one side, you have Tucker Carlson, and on the other, you have Don Lemon or Rachel Maddow or whatever. Uh, They gave up journalistic integrity long ago, friends. It is a world of amusement. It It is a world of trying to rally the side, to bolster their people for more clicks, for more advertisement. It's a business. It's not journalism. It hasn't been journalism for quite a long time. Regardless of claims to being fair and balanced, they're out for the Benjamins. Make no mistake, it's a business, not journalism. They're more concerned with owning libs or owning the cons or whatever the case might be. Sadly, amusement has taken over much of our public discourse. And the result has caused us to be an incredibly impatient, unthinking people. Uh, Any scholar will tell you, just to begin a study on this topic, minimum three to five books. But our culture dwells on a 280-character tweet or a thread for the truly discerning. Uh, It used to be a 10-minute YouTube video. Now it's a 45-second TikTok. Is that what? I don't even know what TikTok is, but I guess they're little even shorter clips. We continue to want to lower the bar for real, careful discourse and conversation. Now, in case you're wondering, this opening rant does have a point, and it's deeply connected to our passage for this morning. You see, I start with this discussion about our insatiable desire for information and to make up our minds because it reveals an underlying problem which has come about from all of this, is that we are incredibly impatient people. And when studying the life of Abraham, Abraham, Abram, what you come to find out is God is very patient. So patient, in fact, that we saw last week how Abram was called out of Ur of the Chaldeans, and that he, he was called to leave his father and his, his family, but his father-in-law ended up going with him and to Haran, where his, his father Terah died. And then Abram ends up finishing his journey and goes on down to Canaan. He builds some altars, uh, some, some meeting points between God and man in this promised land before making his way to Egypt. And now this morning we see him come back up. By the way, That journey is some 2,200 miles on foot. That's walking here to Chicago. That's quite a lot of patience, walking. But it gets better. God says, walk to this land, because I will give it to you and to your offspring. But we were told that his wife was barren. And even better than that, when he gets there, as we just read in our passage, oh, by the way, those people actually own the land. But one day, one day, it'll be your land. I mean, you're not going to see it be your land, but your offspring will. And yet, in these chapters, chapter 13 and 14, which we'll consider this morning, Abram is incredibly patient, waiting on the Lord. As we will see, it's some 25 years between the time of his call 
and the time of the fulfillment of part of God's promise to him. So our passage for this morning, I'm going to argue, is while we wait for the promises. And and my argument is this. I believe this is what chapter 13 and 14 of Genesis are, are driving us at, is this, is that the Christian life is one of waiting on and trusting the promises of God and seeking to be a blessing to those around us while we wait. So the Christian life is one of waiting on the promises of God and seeking to be a blessing to those around us while we wait. We'll look at this passage under the three points of looking in faith or in flesh, of acting with compassion and courage, and then receiving and being a blessing. So first we'll consider chapter 13. I started reading at verse 1, but really uh, verse 1 is kind of a hinge. So 2 through the end of the chapter forms a, a, a section here. And in chapters 13 and 14, we get the first two of three uh, stories in where Lot is contrasted with Abram. Uh, and the third will be in chapters 18 and 19. The Lord willing, we'll see those in a couple weeks. But the main thing you see here in this contrast, this foil of these two characters, is that Lot is one who looks with eyes of flesh, whereas Abram is one who looks with eyes of faith. Hence the title of this point. See, Lot, we see, he looks and saw the land uh, that was down there near Zoar, and we'll consider that in a bit. But Abram, on the other hand, he looks with eyes of faith or patience, waiting. And this is why chapter 13 is bracketed by the altars. He came back between Bethel and Ai to where an altar was, meeting on the Lord, waiting on the Lord. And at the end, the chapter has him with building another altar, waiting on the Lord, meeting the Lord. The altars are like kind of mini proto-temples, that place where God's people meet with God's presence in God's land. But in the middle of this chiastic chapter, it all hinges on Lot saw, and he chose the land, which we're then told was full of wickedness. So at a structural level, Lot's choice of sinful Sodom to live in that valley is the middle point, whereas Abram is the one who's willing to wait in faith. That's what we see. Now, it's interesting, Lot's foolish choice has language that should cause us to remember the garden. He looks, and it's delightful, it looks beautiful, as Eve had done in the garden. We'll consider that more in a minute. But to remind us of where we were last week, Abram had passed through the land to go down to Egypt because there had been a famine in the land. Now, we're not told that their famine was over. We were told that Abram was kicked out of Egypt uh, because he had pawned off his wife as his sister, which didn't go so well for the Egyptians. God put plagues on them. Well, now Abram is back in the land, and he's back to fulfilling the purpose for which God called him. At the beginning of chapter 12, God had said he is calling Abram to be a blessing for the purpose of Abram being a blessing to the world. And that's precisely what we're going to see in chapters 13 and 14. Abram living out this blessing that God had made him or blessed him for. Well, a conflict arises between him and Lot, his nephew. And the conflict is because they have too much stuff. Uh, I'd love to think about materialism and collection of things, but we'll pass that by for this morning. Uh, In total trust on the Lord, though, Abram sees the problem of too much stuff, and he says, I tell you what, you pick wherever you want. Now, this is him looking with eyes of faith, because remember, God had promised to give him this land. So if he was going to try and fulfill God's promises for him, as he'd done before by trying to save his neck by handing his wife over, he would have said, well, you can go over there. But instead, he's trusting the Lord. He says, you, you pick left, I'll go right. You go right, I'll go left. He's trusting the Lord is going to fulfill his promises. He doesn't have to figure it out for himself. And so Lot chooses. 
Now, from where they stood between Bethel and Ai, it's a big elevated plain, so he had a 360-degree kind of view of the whole area. And it says that Lot looked down, in verse 10, it, it looked like the, the garden of God or the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. That might sound strange to us living in the Pacific Northwest with all the rain and green. We think, Egypt, isn't that kind of desert? But the Nile, each year, would go into flood stage, and it would create wonderful, lush vegetation. And so it was very well watered in that ancient time when you didn't have power watering like we do today. Well, remember, the Egypts, the, uh, the Israelites had just come out of Egypt, and Moses is writing for them. We'd just come out of Egypt, the land of the serpent. And so they, as the first readers, would hear this and think, why is he choosing to go to the place that looks like Egypt? Doesn't he know? They would catch this. Just as the serpent had tempted them in the garden of God, so too the, the serpent tried to destroy us in the garden of Egypt, is the way that this first little bit of literary journey is going on. There's some other literary work going on here. It says he went east. Now, all the way throughout Genesis, east is east of Eden. So there's an irony playing out here. It looks like the garden of God that he's going to, but he's going further east of Eden, further away from God. That's why one theologian said, Lot fancied he was dwelling in paradise, but he was nearly plunged into the depths of hell. There are some other literary clues that Sodom is like the land of snakes that play out through this section. But in case you missed it, then it's spelled out quite clearly. It was a place of great wickedness, and this was the, where he stationed was where it was before the Lord destroyed it. So by way of application, as we saw last week, God specifically chose to give Abram the land of Canaan, which is the cursed land in the promised land that God gave to his people. But Canaan is cursed because through Ham, the curse came from Noah. So God intentionally chose. He had the whole world. He could have put them anywhere, but he gave them that land. God has called his people to dwell in the midst of a godless world. That's why we're also told in this section of chapter 13, that the Canaanites and the Perizzites, they, they still live there. It was still their land. So God calls his people to live in the midst of this godless world. He sends them and gives them the land in the midst of this godless world. And yet, you have to live in their midst without living like them. That's another contrast we get between Abram and Lot in this story. See, Lot chose to live closer and closer. If you study Lot, he actually does this move. First, he sets up his tents near them here in 13. In 14, he lives in Sodom. And then by the time 18 and 19 come around, we find Lot again. He's a leading man of Sodom. So yes, we must live in the world, but not be of the world. So see, on the one hand, we cannot flee from our mission, our calling that we've been made salt and light, that we, that we have to dwell here. God chose us to dwell in this world. But on the other hand, we're to be a distinct people, a light shining in the darkness. Now, I'd be prepared to make a long argument that the Bible's prescription for how we are to live in this world is best lived out through meaningful church membership, that that is how we both live in and distinct from the world. Here's a couple reasons why. First of all, I say meaningful church membership because oftentimes membership can just be about you show up and stick your thumb up or thumb down, and it's just about the voting. But historically, Baptist churches understood membership as about discipling one another, as committing to one another, caring for one another, praying for one another, providing for one another. Uh, that, that's why there was often a church covenant 
which is one of the documents that I am prayerfully hoping to, to encourage us to adopt as the elders prayerfully review the documents of the church and we see what things are helpful and what, what things we would be better helped by changing. One of those is I would love for us to adopt a church covenant where each member covenants to care for the rest of the members of this church. Uh, here's an example of some, some things that are included in a church covenant. Remembers say to one another, we will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We will, by God's grace, forsake the paths of sin and walk in the ways of holiness all the days of our lives, striving together for the advancement of this church in knowledge, holiness, comfort. We will regularly gather together, engage in gospel community, rejoicing with each other's happiness and bearing one another's burdens and sorrows. We will pursue the Lord Jesus Christ through the ordinary means of grace and will encourage the same in one another. And we'll bring up those under our care in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and by pure and loving example seek the salvation of our friends and family. Oftentimes church covenants were about 12 statements like that. And they were ones that sometimes would be repeated on Sundays when you're going to take the Lord's Supper, reminding you that this is what you're doing. You're gathering around the supper, covenanting together that this is the life to which we've been called. So far more than voting on this or that thing, church membership is about walking out discipleship together. It's, it's how Christians obey the commands to submit to their leaders and how leaders obey the commands to, to care for those who the Lord has given them to watch over. It's how we fulfill the one another commands. So I would say that that is how we, on the one hand, live in the world, where we're a light, and yet we live distinct, committed to each other. And when one errs, you, you pull them back and draw them back in lovingly, correction and discipline. Well, chapter 13 then ends with the Lord reaffirming all the land to Abram, that every direction he can see will be given to his offspring which is now explained to be as the dust, uncountable. Now, how that plays out, we will consider a bit more next week. Um, but Abram is moving closer in to the promised land, you might say, because he builds yet another altar, another meeting place between him and the Lord, where he can dwell with the Lord. So back in the land and back to being a blessing, Abram now is going to have another opportunity to bless even more than just Lot, his family. And so this is acting with compassion and courage. Look at uh, Genesis 14, verses 8 through 16. Genesis 14, we'll read verse 8 through 16. <clears throat> then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Siddim against Kederlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elasser, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled into the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, and then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions, since he was living in Sodom. A man who had escaped came and reported this to Abram, the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Aner, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men into attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. 
And he discovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and all his possessions together with the women and the other people. So the chapter begins with this battle. King Kedorlaomer had been requiring tributes from these other kings, and they rebel against him. And so he goes out to battle, and in the part of his battle, he decides to kind of do a raiding party through the land, through this part of the promised land. And so then we read of these other five kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and Bela. They all go out to fight against Kedorlaomer and the, his other crew, so five kings against four. Kedorlaomer's crew wins the day, and they decide that they're just going to go ahead and take everything and pillage it all and take it back to, to his homeland. So now he's kind of the king over the land, you might say. And so he carries off everybody, and then one of the men escapes and gets word back to Abram. And Abram decides to go after him, to recover Lot and the other people. Abram, we read, gathers the 318 men born in his house. So he's kind of like a small town mayor. I mean, he's got quite a crew, and we've, we've been hearing about how much he had. But he gathers all these men, and he goes after them. And we read that he catches up with them at night, and he splits into a certain party, and he goes, and he strategically attacks, and he wins the day, and he brings back the goods. The story is simple enough. But part of being a Bible student is you want to ask the question, why is this included in the Bible? What does this tell us about anything? What purpose that Abram res rescued Lot? I mean, Lot isn't even mentioned later. He brings back stuff to Sodom. Well, I'll tell you, this is where you have to do a little secondary questioning and ask, okay, so what's going on here in the flow of Genesis? And what you find is 28 times in this chapter the word king is used. King and king and king and all the kings and everybody's a king. There's only one person who's not a king, Abram, except for he wins the day, just like a true king would. So that's kind of the hint, the picture that's going on here, is that Abram is really the true king. Uh, he might not have that title, but that's really what he's doing. He's the king, and he's, he's working out God's blessings upon him, that he will be a blessing to the nations, to these kings. And those who curse him or curse his family, a lot as it was, it, they're going to be cursed. But it's also a foreshadowing of something that will happen later. After the Exodus, when they come back up in the book of Joshua, and they go into the land, and they conquer it. They wipe out the rest of the kings. Lord willing, we'll read next week of God telling Abram that you can't have this land right away. Your offspring are going to have to go away for 400 years because the sins of the Amorites have not reached their fullness. And then after that, they'll come back up and they'll go in and take the land. Which is to say that sometimes God uses his chosen people as a tool of judgment on the wicked nations around them. That's very much what's happening here, and it's also happening in the conquest in the book of Joshua. However, that is an Old Testament reality. See, in the New Testament, God's people are no longer a sword-wielding people. God's people are no longer a nation-state. We are those called from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. That's part of why the book of Acts moves from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. We're no longer bound to a particular place. We're no longer bound to a particular nationality or state. Instead, we seek to send the gospel to all those nations and all those states. We want the gospel to, to go into every different tongue and tribe and people, to repent and believe in the true and better son and king of Abram, King Jesus. So see, as we saw last week, the, the heart of the Abrahamic promise, that is the purpose of God choosing Abram, was always aimed at a blessing beyond Abram. 
Uh, it doesn't terminate on him. No. Uh, they were chosen, and Abram was chosen, and his offspring was chosen, first and foremost, so the blessing would go through to the world through Jesus Christ. They served as the instrument, the means, the channel through which the blessings of Abram would flow to the world. So notice the contrast between Abram and Lot. Lot looks and chooses what will be most beneficial to him in the immediate, whereas Abram is waiting on the Lord. And when the opportunity arises to be a blessing, he risks everything, takes all of the men of his village to go and, and to be a blessing. Now, if you're anything like me, you probably vacillate between these two poles of being selfish and selfless. Uh, Lot is clearly the picture of selfishness and Abram the picture of selflessness here. But I think if we're honest, we all go back and forth between these at different times. I've often said to young couples in marriage counseling uh, that getting married and then having children will teach you both how selfish and how selfless you can be. Because there's sometimes when my greatest joy is to do whatever I can to, to serve and care for my wife and daughter. And there's other times where I'm like, no, nah, I'm on the couch. I'm good. You go do something else. I just don't have time for this right now. Am I the only one who ever does this? There better be at least one other hand. Now we can be both incredibly selfish and selfless at other times as well. But I, I bring this up because I still have not heard a good argument from a non-Christian worldview how you make sense of selflessness. Because on a non-Christian, naturalistic view of the world, the, the operating principle is the, uh, is the, you know, the, the, the survival of the fittest, right? But why in the world would you be selfless? Why would you lay down your life, risk everything if it's the survival of the fittest? Think about this just from the, the flow of the story. Abram and Lot and all these other kings are sharing this land. They clearly can't be near each other. I mean, if I'm Abram and I'm the selfish version of me, I go, great, <laughs> all those people are gone. I have way more land. I mean, God took care of it for me. This was part of my promised land. But that's not what he does. I would, just, I would just ask you, if you're not a Christian here today and you're visiting, what do you make of the selfless tendency, that, that tendency towards benevolence that we all have to some extent? How do you fit that into your worldview? What do you do with that? And if you've never thought about that much, I'd love to speak with you afterwards, because I think that we should have the intellectual honesty to say, if that doesn't fit how I put the world together, maybe my view of the world isn't quite put together, and maybe I need to do more work there. But the weakest gazelle always gets eaten by the lions, but that's not always how it works in this world, because of benevolence. So I'll be standing out there afterwards. I'd love to speak with you more about how these things play out. But so far in the story, basically, Abram has done this incredibly selfless thing, but it's just flowing out the promise of God that he'll be a blessing to all these nations. And so he goes, and he goes on this great big battle, and he fights, and he wins the king back, and he's kind of the king, right? He's the king figure that is pictured in this scene. But now, one of the weirdest passages in the Bible takes place. Dean was super excited for me to get to this passage, because we get introduced to a character that is really hard to explain. And this is going to connect by saying we receiving and being a blessing in our third point. So look with me at Genesis 14, verses 17 through 21. After Abram returned from defeating Keterleomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he was priest of God Most High. 
And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, With raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me. To Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, let them have their share. What are we to make of this figure, Melchizedek? He's mentioned here and in Psalm 110, the only other place in the Old Testament, and then he's mentioned in the book of Hebrews, as we saw earlier. Now, in the flow of the story, though, Melchizedek completely doesn't matter. Here's what I mean. Read again verse 17, and then I'm going to read instantly verse 21, and just listen to the flow of the story, right? So, Abram comes back from battle. After Abram returned from defeating Keterleomer, the kings allied with him. The king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, 21. The king of Sodom said to Abram. You feel the flow of the story? Melchizedek is an interruption. So the picture is the king of Sodom is coming out to meet Abram, who's just rescued all his goods, and it's like, and now for something completely different. And we have this interruption of the king of Melchizedek, and then immediately goes right back to Sodom. It's just a very weird kind of little blip on the radar. And then you never hear about it again until David's Psalm 110. What do we make of this very unique character? Melchizedek, the king priest of Salem. Jeru Salem, likely? Well, there's been three views of who Melchizedek is. <clears throat> three major views. And the first one uh, is some say he's an angel. Or others will say he is a pre-incarnate Christ. So it's Jesus appearing before Jesus was born, right? Christ in the flesh appearing before he was born. Uh, I hold to the third view, and I'm going to make an argument for that view this morning, is that he was a real-life, flesh-and-blood human being who was king-priest in Salem. And here's why. I'm going to give you a bunch of arguments why, and I think it's important, okay? First of all, he serves as a foil to Sodom, right? Uh, so that's the first thing he's doing. That's why he's inserted in the midst of the Sodom story, as we'll see. But Psalm 110 and the book of Hebrews, I'm going to argue, actually continue to play this role of saying, no, he was, just, he was just a human. He was a very important human. He's clearly a type of Christ who's pointing to Christ, but he was a human. And I'd say just reading Genesis on its face, you would come to that conclusion. There's nothing in Genesis that makes you think anything other than he's a king. He shows up, he gives him bread and wine, which obviously has some pointers to it. He blesses him, and he takes off. So there's nothing in this text. Where it gets weird is the way Hebrews speaks about him. Sometimes we, we ask questions about what's going on. But in Genesis, there's nothing about him, I'd argue, that makes us think he's anything weird. He's just a king. That's who he is. Now, we read that he is uh, uh, king priest of God Most High. El Elyon is the Hebrew. Uh, now, we could ask all sorts of questions about that. What does that mean? Thankfully, Abram inter interprets it for us in verse 22. He says, I have sworn to the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital E, Yahweh, I have sworn to Yahweh El Elyon, God Most High. So in Abram's understanding, at least, Melchizedek's God is his God, which 
don't just mean that there are others who also believe in God. Abram's not the only one. He was chosen by God for a purpose, but there's others who believe, and clearly this Melchizedek is one of them. And he blesses Abram, and he praises God, who is both creator, and he's also the one who delivered Abram in, uh, Abram's enemies into his hand. Ah, there's a new piece of information. The way you read the first part of this chapter is that Abram is like Mr. Warrior. He shows up at night, he splits up his troops, he's got covert warfare, and he wins the day. But now we read, no, God delivered your enemies into your hands. So the new information is that it was really God's victory. Of course, Abram fought and his men fought, but really the, the victory belonged to the Lord. So in contrast with Melchizedek then, we find this king of Sodom. And he offers to give Abram all the possessions. Sodom just says, give me the people back and you keep all the possessions. Now that was normal in those days. This is setting up what Keter Laomer had before. Keter Laomer, they said they paid tribute. So he's basically saying, we'll be your vassal state. We'll pay you tribute. And then that way you can be kind of our king, uh, you know, or uber king. And Abram won't, won't do it, of course. But then on the other hand, he's very willing to give a tenth of all that he has to this Melchizedek character. So he is willing to, first of all, we learn that Melchizedek is the one who yeah, says ultimately it was God's victory. And secondarily, we see that Abram, the chief patriarch, the, the one who the blessing came to, is paying a tithe to this Melchizedek. So that new information then helps us to see why he would turn down Sodom. Because remember, he could have done exactly what he did in chapter 12 and try and take the land because, hey, he can help God out and this guy's living right here by this land. I could just take it. But now he realizes because it was God's victory, to take money for God's victory would be grotesque. So that's why he has to say, no, no, I've sworn I will not let anyone but God make me wealthy, right? So these two, these questions these kings pose then is whether Abram would become confident in his victory or whether he would trust in God's victory whether he would try to seize the land or wait for God to give him the land. And I'd say that this same battle rages in all the world religions today. All the world religions hinge on, on whether you're trying to prove yourself and do something for God or whether you're trusting that God has done something for you. That we cannot be the good people we need to be. That we cannot ultimately solve the problems which ail us. By the way, as a side note, this is why Christians give testimonies. The Greek word for testimony is martus, your martyr. The idea was that you gave a testimony to who Jesus Christ is. Your testimony was that Jesus Christ is Lord. And people were martyred for that testimony, for that martus. Now, of course, there's a personal element as well, because Jesus rescues us and saves us out of the lives that we had. But a testimony is first and foremost a testimony that Christ is King, that Jesus is Lord. So, of course, our personal testimonies matter, but the emphasis, just as the emphasis is on God winning the victory for Abram, the emphasis on our testimony is Jesus is winning the victory for us. And that's what Abram's doing here. He's testifying, hand raised, I will not let anyone make me rich, but because God is ultimately his provider. So Abram fought, but God is ultimately the one who gives the victory. I think this is summarized well by the old hymn, I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew. He moved my soul to seek him when seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of thee. Thou didst reach forth thy hand and mine enfold. I walked and sank not on the storm-vexed sea. 
was not so much that I on thee took hold as thou, dear Lord, on me. That's our testimony, is it not? That is Abram's testimony, that God took hold of him, that God delivered him. And so he would trust patiently, waiting even longer for this land. Well, from Sodom's point of view, with these eyes of flesh, Abram won a great victory, and this would just be a wonderful prize for him. But Abram's view with eyes of faith were a little different. They were waiting on God to finish, to bring about the final giving of the land to him. Well, let's consider Melchizedek a little bit more. This king priest is important because he comes up again, I said, in Psalm 110 and in Hebrews. In Hebrews, there's two major things that we learn about him. First of all, that Abram paid a tithe to him, and that's a big deal. And secondarily, that he was this king priest. Hebrews 7.3 says this, Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Notice, he resembles the Son of God. Not he is the Son of God or was the Son of God. He resembles him. Now, by saying that Melchizedek was without father, mother, or genealogy, or life or death, that's where many people say, aha, he, he was never born. See, that's the, that's the trick right there. But you don't want to read that literally. You want to read it literarily. In Genesis, what is a, a sure sign that someone is really important? Well, you know who their mummy and their daddy are. Everyone in Genesis who matters at all, you know, their line, their genealogy. All the way back, you know where they came from. But all of a sudden, in the midst of the story, is inserted this king priest, and you know nothing about him. And yet, he is so important that Abram himself, the patriarch, he stops and he pays him an obeisance, a tithe. That's what the author of Hebrews is getting at. He's not saying that he literally had no genealogy. He's just saying, in the book of Genesis, when genealogies matter, he has none. So Melchizedek then is quite important. We just don't know why he's important. So that's why Hebrews tells us that he was a king priest. Why would that be important? Well, because as you work your way through the rest of the Pentateuch, you start to learn that the priests come from the line of Levi, only Levi. Uh, there, there are no other priests. There's just the line of Levi. And so the idea that the book of Hebrews is arguing that Jesus is the true king priest means you have to justify him being called a priest. And so the book of Hebrews says, well, there's a whole other line of priests. As a matter of fact, uh, you could say that Levi paid his tithe to Melchizedek's line of priesthood through his great-great-grandfather because that's how this worked. If Abram paid a tithe to this other priest, then he's a far greater priest. That's what's happening. Well, I want to make sure you understand why this is so important in the argument of Hebrews, right? Because the letter of the Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians who are being persecuted by other Jews. See, what happened is once Jesus comes and he lives and dies and rises again and ascends, now all of a sudden Christian worship is not bound up with a temple or with sacrifices or with priests. And so these Jews are looking at who used to be their Jewish co-worshippers are no longer worshiping those things, and they're persecuting them. Saying, how do you worship God with no temple? How do you come near with no sacrifice, with no priest? And so the author of Hebrews says, no, wait a minute. Jesus is the far greater priest and sacrifice and temple. He will lead us into the far greater and eternal promised land, the new Jerusalem. There was always all of those things were pointing us like types and shadows 
beyond Abram, beyond his offspring, beyond the land, to the final promise, which is why Hebrews 12.2 says Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. It was always pointing beyond him because he's the true and better priest king, not of the order of, of Levi, of course, but of the order of Melchizedek, the one to whom even Abram, the patriarch, paid his tithes. No, never again will there be a priesthood or a sacrifice or a temple or a land that gives people access to God. We come through Jesus or we remain separated. That's why Jesus says to the woman in John 4, the Samaritan woman, when she asks, well, we worship on this mountain, you worship on that mountain. I mean, potato, potato, right, Jesus? And he says, no, no, no. Only the Jews have had it right. You had to worship at the Jerusalem temple. But a time is coming, and now is, when no longer will you worship him in this place or that. You'll worship him in spirit and in truth. The worship of God is no longer bound to place or temples or sacrifices. Jesus has fulfilled all of those. And he is the true temple, two chapters earlier. If you destroy this temple, and John tells us, speaking about the temple of his body, I'll raise it again in three days. So no, Jesus is the true and final priest and sacrifice and temple. That change from the old covenant way of worship has come about through Jesus. This is why Hebrews goes on to say that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. Christ was sacrificed once to take away sins of many. And for by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So friends, to go back to the earthly shadows of land and temple and sacrifices and priests is to trample on the blood of the covenant. So Hebrews 10, 29 says. So Melchizedek then is this wonderful little pin in the map, as it were. And as you're reading across Genesis, he's almost a, uh, you know, a throwaway character. He seems so very unimportant. He intro, intro, uh, interrupts a conversation with the Sodom. But actually, he's planting a seed to show you that God Most High most assuredly needs or will send a king and a priest. Except for that king-priest will come through this Abram to be Abraham, as we will see, Lord willing, in the weeks ahead. Because the whole point of Genesis is tracing out the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And once again, in these two clash, the seed of the woman will come through Abram and the seed of the serpent is also going to die in Sodom, as we'll see in a couple of weeks. So friends, like Abram, we live in this time of waiting in between, waiting for all those final promises. Because while Jesus is the true temple and priest and prophet and king, we don't yet sit under his rulership. We are still awaiting his final day, his final calling us to be home into his land, the city whose builder is God. And so we wait. And while we wait, we are to seek to be a blessing to those around us. The lion's share of our blessing is yet future, just like it was for Abraham. But that is how we continue to press on, encouraging each other, just wait, just wait. The day will come when the rolls up yonder will be called. And then in that day, there is no temple in that city, for the Lord God, the Lamb, are its temple. And in that day, there, there will be no more sacrifice, for he is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, the Lamb standing, though slain, ruling as king, interceding for us as priest, but king, priest, who knows exactly what it is to suffer the temptations that we had, and yet without sin. Would you pray with me?
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that in the midst of in the midst of this tale of Abraham, we're introduced to a character like Melchizedek, who, by studying him, we get to see one way how you are telling a much bigger story and how your story holds together in Jesus. We pray that you would bless us as we go and cause us to be a blessing to those around us. For Jesus' sake, amen.